Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. We're two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hey, Eve. Hey, Kieran. How's it going? Good. I got the gender marker on my driver's license changed. Woo, I'm so excited. California. Yeah, it was so easy. The I've had this on my calendar since uh, the governor signed it into law in 2017. The senator whose office that I stayed in to testify for AB uh, 2756. The homeschool bill. Yeah, the homeschool bill um, was the person who co-authored the bill in the first place. So that was like a really fun full circle thing and I wrote up a guide if you live in California and want to get your gender marker changed to MF or X it's mm-hmm. super easy I'll link it in the notes later yay that's awesome so great that you can do that I'm so excited about it I've been wrapping up some revisions on my memoir um, I've got my thesis due on the 11th of February and so I'm like in hardcore like edit and revise mode just trying to like put together all these things and I realized like I I have homeschooling like kind of riddled throughout but I haven't like focused on it at mm-hmm. all and so I'm like oh I have to kind of write a chapter about like right. what the fuck this is yeah all of the background for it all the background for it but it's coming together I'm feeling really good about it yay yeah that's super exciting We've talked a lot about how our our former selves would never have recognized us um, in who we are today, right? Yeah. What do you? What would your former former self say about where you're at right now? I feel like they'd be really confused, but also there would be like a huge part that just made sense. Like the, it would it would be jarring and upsetting because. I would be everything I ever wanted to be, but not in a place where I could accept that as something that I was allowed to want. Right, right. Yeah, that, that like having those desires actually be acknowledged and having being okay with that mm-hmm. is like a huge part of it. I think my former self would be like deeply offended and also deeply curious and very like torn between those two things. Yeah, I would be... Depending on on how how old I was, if I like saw myself again, like the which age I was, I would be probably terrified or like really kind of worried about my eternal salvation. Yeah. Well, and I mean, your family wasn't Presbyterian, so you didn't have this whole like perseverance of the saints doctrine go- growing up, did you? No. So. Um, we didn't either. Like, I didn't have that until I was, like, in high school. And we were, our church was switching from strictly charismatic to more of a reformed theology. And, like, one of the tenets of reformed theology is, like, God chooses who gets saved. And you never know who it is. But, like, it's kind of one of those proof is in the pudding kind of situations. Like, mm-hmm. if you leave later, like, leave the faith later and then come back. Like, you were always meant to be saved. You were right. one of the chosen. Yeah. And if you leave later and you never come back, you were, you were never obviously. meant to be saved. You were obviously, like, just, like, pretending. And so there's this, like, sense of, like, predestination, 
both like entitles you to do whatever you want, but also makes you super scared because you never know if you're like one of the uh, ones that God has picked to save. Right. Yeah. So you can't like do anything to earn it. You just have to like be afraid and believe. Yeah. Yeah. My parents didn't, they didn't believe in predestination um, because they felt like that defeated the point. Uh, which was obviously to like suffer and work and be as Christian as possible. Uh, but they <laughs> did believe, which was really kind of uncommon in our circles, that your salvation was something that could be lost. So we went to a lot of churches that preached that like once you were saved, you were always saved. And, and like that was that. Uh, my parents believed that you could like sin so much that you're, you became like, unsaved regardless of like whether or not you left the faith i think it could be like a passive thing well okay so like there's this like legend legendary theological item of the the unforgivable sin Mm -hmm. and it's hotly debated and never really clarified in any particular denomination about what that is. Yep. Did you guys have like a particular thing that you believe the un- unforgivable sin was? Yeah, yeah. My parents were hard set on the unforgivable sin being divorce, but also occasionally being gay. Yeah, so I think that like being gay was less of an unforgivable sin than divorce in our world mm-hmm. like you could you could scare the gay out of people so yeah you could beat the gay out of people but you can like fix infidelity right apparently <laughs> <laughs> funny <laughs> how as polyamorous people <laughs> wow 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 so fun so so logic <laughs> um the other thing that i i remember um I don't know if you ever read um, Shusaka Endo's book, Silence, but I read it in college, and it's this uh, beautiful novel. They made a movie out of it a couple years ago, and it's, I haven't seen the movie, but the the novel is intense and gorgeous, and it's about this, I believe he's a Jesuit priest who goes to Japan before they close their borders to all foreigners Mm. for that, that certain period of time. And he is there, and he's working as a missionary and he has his doubts and then the borders close and he's stuck and he's like basically all of the christians are supposed to denounce their faith right right and what they have them do is they have them like step on and spit on an image of christ which like any true christian knows that like Images of Christ aren't real because, you know, no graven image and all that shit. Um, But, you know, obviously evangelicals don't consider Catholics to be real Christians because of this. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. So much bullshit prejudice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the idea was like, so he was like, he did it to save his life because Mm -hmm. he was like trying to protect some of his, his disciples. But he was also having some doubts of his own. And if I remember correctly, he, like, he died in agony, like, thinking that he had, like, cursed himself with the unforgivable sin by doing that. And because he he saved all these people, he condemned them to death. So, like, like, did he actually do any good as a missionary? So that there's this, like, tightly wound knot of, like, ethical implications of, like, yes, this is a problem. You should be thinking about this before you go and 
yeah. uh, bring your colonialist, imperialist ass into other cultures and impose stuff on them. Right. I think the idea of uh, the rapture and the end times was very present to me as a kid. Mm. And so I believed that if I denied Christ, that would be the unvo- uh, yeah. like, unforgivable sin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that was also kind of assumed that if you like deconvert or abandon the faith that you're not saved but my parents always felt like you could come back from that like you could become re-saved once you learned the error of your ways so if you denied christ and then like had a change of heart and repented you could come back from that but not divorce did you guys talk about people backsliding yes all the time okay so did you ever have anybody in your circle who like had like this testimony of like oh i backslid and then like now i'm like a pastor and like yeah i'm so great yep Yep, and usually it was because of, like, porn or something. Which we're going to have to have an episode. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that later. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert, porn is not addictive. Oh, my God. The other devils don't know what to do. Yeah, we need to talk about your relationship to your body and porn and masturbating and all of that sometime. Yeah, we really, really do. I think I have a sex therapist who's willing to come on and talk to us about that. Yes. It'll be fun. Um, but yeah, so, <laughs> uh, backsliding. backsliding, yeah, so, okay, because I grew up both evangelical and, like, reformed, um, or charismatic and then reformed, so we had, like, elements of both pieces, so I got, like, the hardcore, like, end-time rapture stuff when we lived in California, I got warned about backsliding and, like, uh, you know, losing your faith and, like, leaving the Lord and being afraid of that. And then, like, when I was, like, in high school, it was, like, but also, like, God chooses things and free will is not real. And and so before that, when we were in California, I was in um, a non-denominational church. I was going to a Baptist Awana setting. So I was, like, very involved in that. I was, mm-hmm. like, doing competitions and stuff. And I was, like, attending some of their Wednesday night church services. And then um, Franklin Graham came through and did a, like, a revival service. Oh, yeah. In town. In Visalia in, like, 97, I think. So I, like, when I was a little kid at a vineyard church, I wanted to take communion. And my parents were like, well, you can't unless you're saved. So, like, what does this mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and so that's when I, like, asked God into my heart or whatever. I was probably, like, seven. And yeah. then, like, you know, I kept being mean to my, my siblings so obvi- and getting angry at things. So, like, obviously, like, I wasn't saved. So I had to do it again. And I did it at Awana. I, like, walked up the aisle and, like, said the sinner's prayer. And, like, people were like, oh, my God, wow, we didn't know you were saved before. We thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> and then later at the Franklin Graham Crusade, I uh, – they were having people come down to the football field from the stadium, from the stands, mm-hmm. to, like, pray the sinner's prayer. And they were, like, giving them, like, a, d- a devotional or some sort of, like, pack. And I was like, I need help. Like, I'm still getting angry at my siblings. I'm still, like, reacting to things. I'd already Being been a baptized. human. Yeah, I'd yeah. already been baptized at that point. And, like, um, I'm backing up a little bit. But getting baptized yeah. in the environment we were in... Um, because we were charismatic and not just like Baptist, we believed that 
the gifts of the Holy Spirit were valid for everybody. Yep. So praying in tongues was supposed to happen if you were actually saved. And so um, when I got baptized, I was like, it was this massive baptism in somebody's backyard pool. And a bunch of people from church were there. And so it was like five or six people getting baptized all at the same time. And almost everybody came out of the water and like started praying in tongues. Oh my God. Yeah. And I just kind of looked around and was like, the fuck? Yep. <laughs> I, I, and I was like, I don't want to fake this. I feel like yeah. faking it would be wrong. And if I start doing this, I would be faking it. Yep. And I have a problem with that. Yep. Did I do something wrong? Is this it? Like, uh, maybe I'm not really saved. And so that, like, ate at me, and I kept having nightmares about it. And so when Franklin Graham came into town, we went to this, like, revival meeting. Um, I was like, hey, Dad, I want to go down to the field and, like, say the sinner's prayer again. And he's like, but you've already been baptized. You're already saved. And I was like, yeah, well, I just want to rededicate my life to Christ. (laughs) It's fine. But I was paranoid. I was like... What yeah. if I'm not saved and like the world's gonna end tomorrow? Yeah. Clearly, obviously, obviously, because Franklin I mean, Graham is in town is telling up. us that it's gonna be done. Yeah, yeah. My parents also, as they they started out as as Baptists and were pretty like mainstream, and then as they like became more charismatic, baptism also became more of a thing, and speaking in tongues became a huge symbol of whether or not you were saved. And I remember. Like, my brother also did that. My brother, I remember him being very anxious when he was a child about being saved. And I remember a bunch of my other siblings feeling that way, too. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. And because I didn't, people thought I was weird. Like, like I was, I was looked at skeptically because I didn't go to the altar multiple times out of paranoia and anxiety wasn't the, i don't know and, and i wasn't i was this. the only one of my siblings who wasn't baptized more than once because i was like i feel like it counted baptized more than once oh yeah my parents were very much into like bap well they decided after they became charismatic that all the baptisms that we had when we were baptist ish uh suddenly didn't count that's I mean, there's but like I, I was like, no, I feel like it counts, so I'm just gonna. There's keep like it. one. It's one thing to like get baptized as an infant and not remember it, and want to like get baptized as an adult, right? When you like feel like you're able to like consent to it, right? Um, it's an entirely different thing to like get rebaptized twice when you're like both old enough to know it's up, right? Yeah, and, like, my parents never did infant baptisms because that's Catholic. So they did, like, dedication, and then after, like, my siblings and I all became however old enough that we felt like we were to decide that we wanted to be Christians or whatever, then we would be baptized. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Or, and then baptized again after, after like, the first round of salvation wore off. But it's, like... I mean, I guess, like, I, I spent a lot of my later years in groups that that really valued sacraments and so like to get rebaptized is like violating a sacrament like yeah. that's fucked up yeah everyone like most people thought it was weird to be baptized again but my parents were like well we we understand more now so we have to like do it again as like a reaffirmation of our faith or whatever did you ever speak in tongues? Did you ever like pretend I did to speak not, in tongues? No, for the same reason. Like I felt like if I faked it, that I would be faking it, and that would be more egregious than not speaking in tongues. 
Like yeah. faking faking a spiritual gift seemed like the worst idea. Right. That's it's <laughs> well, and my parents bad. also were very life and death about um communion. Like they they made it a huge thing and every time communion came around at church they always were like, okay, we're going to sit down and we're going to have this conversation where we explain the gravity of what this is to you, which is literally drinking like the flesh and blood of some dude who died 2000 Wait, so years you ago. guys believed in transubstantiation when you weren't Catholic? Well, not quite, but like <laughs> close. Like it wasn't, it wasn't as literal, but it had that weight, if that makes hmm. sense. Like it was... It was almost, it was about as weighted as it is in Catholicism, I would imagine, hmm. but without any of the other, like, things that come with Catholicism, which, like, now that you make that connection, it makes sense since my dad grew up Catholic. Oh, okay, that makes more yeah. sense. So, my my dad, because he didn't believe in that, um, now, the Episcopalians, like, don't ask me to explain the difference, but, like, the Episcopalians <laughs> believe in this, like, consubstantiation, which is, like, halfway between the transubstantiation, where it becomes literally the body and blood of Christ, to this, like, it is a consecrated substance that represents the body of Christ, and then there's the, like, purely allegorical, like, uh, ev- mainstream evangelical, where, like, this is merely representative, mm-hmm. and it's not, like... It doesn't change anything. It's not a. It's not. It's not a sacrament because we don't believe in sacraments as such. Right. And so um, the Episcopalians, because they were that one step closer to transubstantiation, my father. Every single time we visited my grandmother's Episcopal church, he wouldn't take communion. Oh wow! And that was like two or three times a year. And my mom would go up because she was like, "I don't have a problem with this." And my father would be like. All right, kids. Now you have to understand, like, what you're doing here. <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, cool. I'm going up. It's fine." <laughs> yeah. And you know, a part of me is probably like, he's also kind of a germaphobe, and it was probably just that he didn't want to like share the cup because, like, it's right. one chalice. Yeah. But also, but but also, there's this like theological reason that he was using to back right, it up. obviously, yeah. So I always believed that I was saved after I got into um, Reformed theology. Like, as soon as I understood that, I was like, oh, cool, I don't have to worry about this anymore. Me, like, fucking up with my siblings and, like, being angry and reacting to things, this is, like, normal, and I can just, like, progressively get better, and, like, that's the Holy Spirit working in me, and, Mm -hmm. like, I don't need to worry about it because this is on God's timeline, not mine. Yeah, that makes, yeah. Were you were like because as a kid I was like paranoid all the time that I was like had lost my faith and was like yeah you know, going yeah down. I was really nervous about that too like that I would randomly make a mistake and do the thing that was like the worst thing or the most unforgivable or whatever I don't remember when that stopped it eventually did stop. And I think it was after I got older and and realized that, like, the unforgivable sin would have to be so egregious and not anything like being mad at my siblings that, like, helped. I often tell people, like, when I talk about my past and fundamentalism that, like, I thought I was a really terrible kid and, like, super rebellious. And I was actually, like, the most straight-edge 
right? Asshole yeah. ever. Yeah. Yeah. I was such a Taiwan. Yeah. I didn't realize that until I was like 22. I was like, I, I felt like I was a horrible, horrible child, a horrible daughter, the most like cruel, rebellious person ever. And then I grew up and I talked to people and then people started telling me about things they did when they were kids. And I was like, I was fantastic. I like, <laughs> like the worst I did was sigh and forget to do laundry. Like, <laughs> I did I did. Wow, I was, you wow. are just like yeah. going to hell. Like I read, ain't gonna fold itself. I read Elsie Dinsmore and like compared myself to that standard. Oh yeah, well she's and, just a basket case. Yeah, and and she has like no feelings at all. And, well, she's like, also being groomed by pedophiles. Right. Like, yeah. No. Like she's abused and repressed, and there is a lot going on in that book. But as a as a child. Her given that book as something to like emulate as as a girl i felt mm-hmm. like i was the worst because i had any feeling at all and needed anything at all and, and i wasn't like immediately cheerful about like being told to like give up something i wanted exactly that meant that i was like yeah a piece of shit right and like waking up and feeling bad one day was like a mark on my moral fiber as a person and and not just bodies yeah that character house is like mm-hmm. going to fall apart if you don't keep working on it right exactly i did this one thing this one time um i must have been eight or nine i think it was probably closer to nine i had a ballet recital in this theater in downtown visalia like if you're in ever in visalia california you can like go to it's the old fox theater i think um and they have this balcony over that has like this like cutout that kind of um, looks down into the foyer, which is a really weird design and obviously like is really bad for like sound stuff. Like I, mm-hmm. acoustically speaking, I'm like this is dumb, but <laughs> hey, whatever. Yeah. Um. So I had a ballet performance in that theater. It was like an end of the year thing. We're doing like Sleeping Beauty. I was in this gorgeous little outfit and I really loved it. Um, but all the girls in my group were, like, kind of bitchy and, like, had knew each other from school and just, like, weren't hanging out with me. And so I was, like, really bored. And then we went first or second in the, in the lineup because we were younger. Mm-hmm. And we had to wait in the green room for all this time. And I was just going stir-crazy. And my dad was supposed to come to the performance, and I guess he was late and I missed it. Or um, was late to pick me up because he met someone he knew. I I can't remember what. Mm -hmm. But I was, like, waiting in the green room and, like, the theater's empty. The concert, the performance is done. Like, I should be be out of there. There's, like, a handful of kids milling around in the green room still waiting to be picked up. And so I'm like, fine, we're going to go find our parents. So I, like, Pied Piper, like, lead these little kids out. <laughs> um, and by little, I mean they were all my age. Maybe right. one was younger. Some, some of them were older. But, like, we're all around the same, like, three or four years. Yeah. And um, and we go into the balcony. And we see this, like, cutout. And we look down. And we can see all the people milling down in the foyer. And we're like, oh, can we see our parents? And then I realized that I can, like, spit on people. <laughs> oh, my God. And I, like, had pretty good aim at that point. I was, like, such a tomboy. I was, like, obsessed with it. And so I, like, aimed for this bald guy's head. Oh, my God. And I got him. 
And he like looked at me and he like cussed and I like ducked and laughed. And all the kids were like, whoa, this is cool. So we all started doing it. And like, I, I can't remember if it was me or someone else, but we like got this lady and her cleavage and like, <laughs> it was just like, it was great. And then I looked down and it's my dad. Oh my God. Up, oh no. And I was just like, oh fuck. Oh. Um, and apparently he was like going to get me flowers and ice cream after we're at the show, but like now he's not going to get them and he'll just get them from mom and like, I can't have any and I'm oh in my trouble. God. And he like comes out and like pulls me out by my ear from this crowd and I oh just my remember, God. like, sitting in the car on the way home being like, that was really fun. I didn't really do anything that wrong. Mm-hmm. And also, am I going to hell? Because right. that was kind of worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, that was my, like, I'm a bad kid thing yeah. for, like, a decade. I, like, oh my didn't God. do anything worse than that ever until, like, I, like... Went to college and like pulled my first all nighter, and that was like on par with like spitting on people <laughs> in my head. Oh my god! I was such a yeah good kid. Yep. Yeah, I had like this moment where I just like that was just such a huge revelation to me when I realized that I was not actually a bad kid. Like, what was it that made you realize that you weren't a bad kid? What was, like, the thing that you thought made you bad and, like, what, like, changed that? The thing that I thought made me bad was, well, one, running away and abandoning my siblings. But also, like, not taking care of them as well as I was told that I should be taking care of them. Because you were clearly their parent. Right. And and that was and the thing that, that changed that and made that light bulb go off was telling other adults about that experience and watching their faces and have them tell me back, No, <laughs> you were not bad. You should never have had that obligation put on you. That's wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. You did amazing. And it was like oh. enough of that for me to realize, oh, so like it wasn't I was I'm not a horrible person for forgetting to do 10 loads of laundry that day when my mom set me up to fail like <laughs> is it even physically possible it um, is if you do it all day okay so the thing you were saying about people reacting is yeah. really interesting because that story I just told you about spitting on people after the dance recital mm-hmm. is the only story that I've ever told anyone from my childhood where they thought I was bad. Every other one, I've been like, hey, look, I've got a joke. Or like, wow, mm-hmm. I was like such a bad kid. And like they listen and they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I'm like, no, it was supposed to be funny. Right? Oh my God. I I try to tell stories and that happens all the time. And I'm like, I eventually just kind of stopped telling those stories. Yeah, me too. Because <laughs> everyone was just horrified. And I was like, no, but my dad made the butchers angry by murdering the pigs. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And everyone's just horrified that that was a thing that happened. And I'm like, but it was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Dark humor only works on people who like actually suffered, right? Uh, if you don't get it, you're lucky. Yeah, consider yourself lucky. Oh, my God. Yeah, see, I, I just had to stop telling these stories because yeah. it's like, ooh. I, ooh, like. I'm making myself seem out of touch, and yeah. I guess I am. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I like I would try to like talk to people. This is like when I was learning how to socialize with other people my age. And and I would just like watch people's reactions and I was like, all right, I need to not do that. That is not the reaction that I'm going for. Yeah. I'm just gonna rewrite some of these things to make them not as jarring to people. Did you ever put out a fleece? No well, my parents wanted to. You know, you know what the term. Means. I know, like, yeah. Can you yeah. want to let's explain it because I'm. I feel like not everybody knows that. I need to see which prophet it was. Um, I'm gonna have to Google this. I want to say it was. I want to say it was either Elijah or Elisha. I want to yeah, say it, it was, was one of them, them, and I want to get it right. Yeah. I want to say uh, no, Gideon. Uh, it was Gideon. Yes, I remember that. I'm glad now. I looked it up. Yeah. Look at us forgetting the Bible. I feel so proud of myself right now. I'm so proud of myself every time I forget Bible Me stuff. Me too. When I can't remember where a verse is that I know, I'm so happy. It's really great. I um I've just gotten to the point in my memoir where I like need to like find a Bible to have on hand. And I think I got rid of them all. I turned mine into origami. Oh good. Yeah. But Gideon fleeces. Okay, Gideon and fleeces. Okay, so what did he do? He was called by God to save Israel. And he didn't believe that he was supposed to do that job. So he, like, put out two pieces of wool outside of his house overnight. And he's like, I don't know, it looked like it was supposed to rain or something. And he's like, Mm -hmm. look... God, if you want me to do this, you're going to make these completely dry in the morning and all of the ground around them are going to be wet. And sure enough, that happened. He was like, whoa, 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 that's totally a fluke. We got to do this again. So he was like, all right, looks like it's going to be dry overnight. So I'm going to put out two new fleeces. Mm -hmm. And if they are wet wet and the ground around them is totally dry, then I'm really supposed to lead the Israelites into battle. Like, save the nation. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. I think there were a couple other tests that he put yeah, out. Yeah, I but think he there was, was basically, like three or four. Yeah, one involved a well and one involved a tree, I think. Um, but the, the gist of it is that, like, at the end of the day, he was like, okay, I can't deny this anymore. I have to do this job because God really clearly wants me to do this. Yep. That was kind of a a metaphor for like asking God to give you a sign. Yep. And so I knew um, there were a lot of like decisions, like big decisions people would have to make where they would like put out a fleece, metaphorically speaking, and they'd um, like be like, all right, so God, like if I like, you know, run into traffic on the way home, then I'm supposed to ask my wife if we're supposed to move for this church or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, something like that where it's like, you know, normally this thing doesn't happen, but like make it happen and I'll like believe that this is real. Yep. So did your parents? They did. Um, I don't, I'm not remembering what all that they did that for, but it was something that was pretty common. I think they did it like to figure out if they should tithe more. Probably. <laughs> I think that's what it was. Well, is the there like, well, yes, right? well, yeah, exactly. I mean, and, when I left, I think they were giving fifty or sixty percent of their income to the church, Talking which is that, ridiculous. Uh, yeah, 
progressive tax rate. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, I, I, it, it also took leaving and becoming an adult for me to realize that, like, the poverty that we were in was completely self-inflicted. If my parents hadn't given over half of their income to, like, the local non-denominational church in every crisis pregnancy center in the area, we would have been fine. Yeah, ours ours was a lot of that too, and it was mostly just if you guys hadn't had nine fucking kids, right? Yeah, we might not have struggled. Yeah, other but people you can't, you in can't that same job were able God. to put their kids through college, right? Yeah, my parents also believed very much that um, if if something was supposed to happen, that you would do literally nothing to make it happen, and it would just fall in your lap. And if you had to work for it to happen, then it wasn't going like it wasn't supposed to. Interesting. Yeah. I kind of like had some of that early on and then later on there was this other point of view where it was like if God wants it to happen we're going to receive resistance and if it's like really difficult then God clearly really wants it to happen I remember this woman um, the you will we'll hear about this in another episode about the worship dance team I was in but the woman who ran it like at one point wanted to get we had a bus that belonged to the group for touring and she wanted to get a second bus I think or a better bus or something mm-hmm. but it was like and she wanted to have us travel ab- abroad and dance in Europe and these two things that she really wanted us to do, she like, we were going to go to Romania. Wow. She was trying to raise money for it, and we were, like, trying to get visas and, like, logistics worked out. And it was really difficult, and it kept going wrong, kept going wrong, and kept going wrong. And we kept going, like, Connie, like, this is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And she kept being like, no, because we're having resistance. That makes me more sure that God wants us to do this. Weird. Like, this is just the devil throwing up snares. Like, this is, like, mm-hmm. the devil thwarting God's plan, and we just have to, like, stay stay the course. Yeah. I think my parents also had some of that. Like, so if it was something that, like, like, it was just normal, everyday stuff, they believed that we were supposed to suffer and everything was supposed to be really hard. Like, existing at its base level was supposed to be really difficult and really hard. But if, like, we were supposed to move or mm-hmm. change jobs or something big, life-altering were supposed to happen, that should just happen, like, by falling out of the sky and into your lap. Right. Like, if you're not supposed to starve, God's supposed to, like, put that money in your mailbox right. on Friday. Yeah, or, like, I don't know, my grandparents bought an angel food box. Is like that's God providing. It's like sure, <laughs> or it's your parents making sure you don't starve I think their it's grandchildren. So interesting that like that mindset coexists with the like bootstraps mentality, where like right. you're, you're lazy and entitled, and like welfare queens exist, and like you shouldn't ask the government for help. Yeah, yeah, but you know, intentionally making these decisions and saying that God is trying you or testing you or you're being persecuted or whatever is totally different and definitely valid. In terms of, like, being okay with doubt in faith and the consequences thereof, like, I am okay with being wrong about Christianity because, okay, so I'm agnostic. I don't necessarily um, believe that Jesus is the higher power. I believe that a higher power is possible, and I'm happy to be wrong, but I'm just going to, like, live my life according to, like, 
the best ethical code that I can come up with and appreciate my small place in the universe. Mm -hmm. And that's about as far as I'm willing to go. Yep. But beyond that, like, I, like, I'm really happy to be wrong about faith because I have seen Christians ignore abuse so yeah. much. Yeah. And Jesus wouldn't have done that. Jesus would not have allowed children to be abused the way we were abused. Yep. Jesus not would not have been okay with women being abused the way that we've seen women abused in the church, the way power has been treated, and the way the church systems have enabled these abusers to thrive really has sealed the deal for me in terms of like, if Jesus is real, there's going to be a contingent of followers yeah. who are not going to enable that stuff. Yep. And I'll be right there with them, Yeah. but I haven't met them yet. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of, that's the thing for me too. And the way I, the way I kind of see myself is, honestly, I'm following more of Jesus's teachings than every Christian that I met and knew growing up in every exposure to Christianity that I've had. Mm -hmm. uh, like, if I'm just looking at, like, the Beatitudes, I'm doing those things. Like, yes. I am yes. working for justice. I am feeding the hungry and the poor and the meek and the, like, downtrodden. I am taking care of my people as much as I can, as well as I can. I am doing all of those things that Christians are supposed to be doing because as a human being with empathy, I think that is important. Yes. And I don't see Christianity doing any of that, and I'm fine with it. I stopped going to church in 2014. Um, or, yeah, 2014. And I had been going to church in Episcopalian, liberal Episcopalian churches for a couple years. And I was in a position where they were like, super affirming they were super open they were super anti-capitalist like it was great in all of these ways and i still was having panic attacks yep. when i tried to go to church mm -hmm. and i was like okay so if i'm wrong that's fine it's worth it to just like save my sanity yes like my body literally refuses to let me yep. go to church and feel safe yep and I can appreciate it from a distance, and if I get to the point where I stop having these panic attacks and I miss it, I'll go back. Yeah. And if, like, God's a thing that can control that, he, she, it, they will allow me to get to that point. And I've just never gotten to that point. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I have, like, every year or every six months, I've tried to go back for some service to some church somewhere, and I always have to leave during the sermon because I'm just like, oh, God, I can't breathe. Yep, yep. <laughs> this is not working. Yeah. I can't even, like, there are events and, like, politics things that happen out here that happen in churches, and I can't go to them because even being in a church building, despite it not being for a service, gives me a panic attack. I went to a, like, community planning meeting that was in a church and I had to leave halfway through because I was having an anxiety attack and I just couldn't deal with it because something about being in those spaces just triggers me so much and I just yeah. can't think or focus or do anything I just have to get out of there well I mean I was I was in a position in um my first few months at site in my village in Kyrgyzstan for Peace Corps where um 
it was um, Kurma Night, uh, which is like the um, I celebration that's happening in the fall, and it's all about feeding all of your neighbors and being generous to the community and to the poor. And um, there was this huge dinner that was happening where it was out on a recreational football field that was like with AstroTurf in what looked like it you know had like 12 15 foot chain link fence and it was this huge field and they like spread out tables of food along there and everybody came for dinner it was like the whole town was invited for dinner and so like everybody was going people from my school my host family community my mentor and so you're supposed to have dinner and socialize and then the imam was going to basically give a short sermon and kind of ask for donations for like a charitable fund for the community. Mm-hmm. And the imam, bless him, like I, I could barely understand much of what he was saying, but like the mannerisms were the same. It was like yeah. the same like sermon kind of like posturing and tone of voice and like I need money from you. Yep. And I was so triggered and yep. I was just like, oh, look, my family's calling me, have to go. <laughs> like, yep, I, yep. I made up an excuse and I left. And I felt really bad about that because, like, that's a high holy holiday. This is a this is an event that is not from my culture or from my religion of origin. And, like, I'm supposed to respect this and participate in it, but I'm having a panic attack. Yeah. Even though it's not church, even though it's not in a yep. church, even though it's not even Christian, it yep. just, there was something about the, like, we're at, like, it felt like a pastor asking for money, and yeah. it was a very similar sort of dynamic. And um, I later went to that um, event about a year later, and I was fine. I had gone through some more therapy, and it was great, and I was able to sit through it. So, you know, it's all kind of like yeah. your mileage may vary, yep. but I was just so raw at that point that I just couldn't do it. Yeah. What was the thing or things that started unraveling your faith? I was part of this blogging community um, where we were all trying to reconcile what we were learning about gender roles and oppression, privilege, and... um, feminism and like systemic racism and it was all very baby intro mm-hmm. l- like bare, not even 101 levels of stuff I, I was like in this blogging community people were talking about this stuff and like the word privilege was being thrown around and I remember like researching it and having this big blow up fight with my husband at the time about like I was like oh you've got male privilege that's why you always yeah. think you're right and I'm wrong Oh, <laughs> and he was like, "Privilege isn't real; it's all in your head." <laughs> and I was like, "That's what a male chauvinist would say." And he's like, "But I'm not a male chauvinist, anyway." Like, I yeah. that's a parody of our fight. That's not what we actually said. Full disclaimer. Like, but that's the, that. That was the sense of it. That was mm. the gist of of the our various sides in that. And I. I remember just being like, wow, like this privilege thing is like really defines a lot of my experiences in the church where I like didn't have time or money or resources. Basically, I was like a upper lower class kid in a like middle upper class community, church community. So like people had free time and free resources Mm -hmm. and they were getting, you know, college paid for and cars given to them. And I was like, please, mom, can I have $12 to get new shoes at Goodwill? 
Right. No, I have to be your slave for another week. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. I'll do that. That kind of stuff. So, and as I said before, earlier, like my family on paper looked like upper middle class. Yep. We should have been able to like provide for everybody's needs, but because Mm -hmm. we had nine kids, the way it was distributed was really bad. But privilege really started coming through. And then I heard the term gaslighting. Yep. And once I understood the term gaslighting, it was another big like, aha. So this is how my father has treated me. And this is how my husband has treated me forever. And also, oh, my, my, my pastors and the church. And like every single time I've been like, hey, something's wrong here. They've been like, oh, no, it's just your like female hormones. Mm-hmm. You can't handle it. No, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but, like, that was the, that, again, was the gist of it. And so, as soon as I started going through that, I was like, okay, but Jesus is the advocate of the downtrodden. Jesus is here for the victims and the marginalized and the underprivileged and, like, Jesus is brown and, like, (laughs) this whole system is, like, really not the reflecting his teachings so there's got to be a way to incorporate all these things so i started looking into like liberation theology and more feminist theologians and um a lot of the arguments came down to semantics and then i started seeing like so there were there were some feminists who were fundamental for starting me thinking about these things who were not willing to take these ideas all the way and as soon as they started realizing where they were willing to stop to preserve either their marriages or their familial relationships or their marriages, and I was in the position of, like, I was losing my marriage, mm-hmm. I had lost my church, I had lost my family. Yep. I had nothing left to lose, basically. And they still had stuff left to lose that they were willing to protect. And so you have, I mean, this is why, personally, like, I don't really enjoy seeing Nadia Boltz-Weber on my Facebook feed or Rachel Held Evans anymore. Yeah. Because, like, while both of them were really formative for me to get out and understanding, like, how feminism can intersect with Christianity, both of them, like, sided with Tony Jones. Yeah. When his wife was like, hey, he's an abusive asshole, and he's, like, you know, keeping my kids from me. And, like, and... Using all of his money to gaslight me. Mm-hmm. And all of these feminists were yep. like, yeah, sure, we'll do a conference with him because it'll make us rich. Like, okay, maybe it wouldn't make them rich, but like, they were all like, it's too There's no solidarity. It's just like, they were ugh. willing to throw a woman under the bus when it came down to their personal careers. Yep. And they were not willing to consistently stand up for the things that they talked about, which. Yep. Every fave has problems. Right. We, like, all of us are learning. This is a process. But as soon as I started seeing stuff like that, I was just like, it's not worth it for me to keep trying to save this faith that is wanting to throw itself in the gutter. Yeah. Yeah. My, like, there are a bunch of factors that kind of led me to deconvert. And... The first, like, thread that undid everything was realizing that, like, my parents kind of lied about whether or not the stillborns would have been able to have been saved because 
they would have been if they'd been in a hospital um, and it would have been fine. And my parents' belief about doctors being evil and faith healing only was such a huge fundamental part of their of of Christianity the way I was taught it and and the way it was like expected uh with my family when when I found out that like the babies could have lived um that kind of really started to unravel everything else in my head because I realized I'd been lied to and I mean I knew I'd been lied to before that but that was just like something I couldn't shake because that was it happened at such a formative time in my life how old were you I was nine when the first one happened okay. and then 13 with the second. Yes. And you were supposed to be involved with both home because they were home births. They were home births. And you were like present. I was for there. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was caretaking the kids and the baby in between was the one that I delivered uh, or cut the umbilical cord of. So mm-hmm. like all of that is, is wrapped up in, like my parents basically how they understand salvation and Christianity. And then when that started becoming unraveled, I started thinking more about other things and I started writing about Christianity in 2010. I wrote about how um, Christianity is supposed to be based on love, but that's not how I was seeing it being done anywhere at all ever. Mm -hmm. And my parents replied to that post chewing me out for suggesting such a thing and all that i the got kids could have been saved if they had been willing to go to the hospital no well that but also that christianity was about love like they hated uh, that idea oh yeah 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 Yeah. like and everyone else that i talked to was like well yeah but also with this caveat of sometimes it's abusive and that's fine too and i got to the point where like the cognitive dissonance was just too much for me like, I couldn't hold that Christianity was supposed to be empathetic and loving and kind and caring for people who have less than you and was being implemented the other way. That term cognitive dissonance was also really that was huge. formative thing. When did you encounter that term for the first time? Uh, I think I ran across that in like 2011 or so. Yeah, I think I ran across it in, like, 2012, and I remember, like, being in, maybe it was 2011, because I remember encountering it in terms of my father, because he was, like, holding me to this standard of, like, you're not an adult, and I have to decide your relationship decisions Mm -hmm. for you, and I was leaving my Sovereign Grace Church to go to a Presbyterian church that was local, this is the Indigo Church that I mentioned before, um, I don't know if we were recording that or not, but um, I so I was going to this this church that uh, a guy who was teaching in Sovereign Grace's pastors' college was running out of my town where my college was, and so it was like a bona fide like approved church, but it was a different denomination. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father was like, "You're an adult. I trust your judgment." Like. God will tell you, like, where to go. Like, your discernment is sound. We've trained you well. Right. And I was like, cool. Okay, so I can pick my new church. Cool. This is, like, where I'm going to go. And then, like, fast forward, like, four months later, and he's like, yeah, but you're not actually, don't, your judgment's, like, all flawed, and, like, you can't decide who you're going to date. I was like, um. Yeah. My parents pulled that, too. match. 
But when I was like, they pulled that on me in 2008 when I was courting. The other thing, and I'm like, this is still very upsetting. And I, I've been trying to write about this and I still don't know how to. So I really loved the church I was going to in Washington, D.C. And, um, and I still feel really fondly about it. The pastor there was really kind to me. And um, my ex was being paid to sing in the choir. He was getting like, I don't know, $50 a Sunday because he's, he's an operatic vocalist and um and he was getting paid to sing in the choir so the traditional service was like 11 and the more contemporary service was at 9 30 and he lived across the street from the church like literally across the street from the church Mm -hmm. and i asked him if he would be willing to give up that 50 dollars a week to go to the 9 30 a.m service so that i wouldn't have to fight like Sunday morning traffic coming in like an hour away because uh, I was living out in the suburbs to go to the 11 a.m. service so that we wouldn't have to see each other at church. Mm-hmm. This is such a silly like nonsense thing, but he like refused to budge. Oh my God. And he wouldn't do that for me. And I was in this position where I really wanted to be able to go to church, but there was no other church that felt safe. Mm-hmm. And so I would have to go up, and if you've ever been in an Episcopal church in, like, the old-style, like, cathedral-style church, like, the choir's up by the altar, and he was up in the... So I, in order to participate in communion, I would have to literally walk past my ex-husband uh, and watch him watching me Yeah, no. to take no, communion. No, And I would have to, like, pass him on my way back to my seat. And, like, try to not make eye contact. And I just couldn't do that. Yeah, no. And he wouldn't make room for me to allow me to keep going to church. So I just stopped. And that was really shitty. And I learned this summer, one of my friends, one of my very few friends who stayed in touch with him, um, he kept telling people I was abusive. And finally, like, this person had a falling out with him. Where she was like, hey, look, you really have got your ex wrong. Mm -hmm. She's not out to get you. She doesn't hate you. She's never been stalking you. She just is really grieved that you've been spreading these lies. Yeah. (laughs) And that's about it. Like, that's that's all. Um, And could you just, like, stop? And he was like, wow, no one's ever said this to me before. Oh, my God. And I was just gutted because... We had when we were getting divorced. We had our pastor who married us. Mm-hmm. We had our pastor at that church in D.C. who was involved. We had a family friend of his who was also a pastor. We had his dad. We had um, a Sovereign Grace pastor, Bob Coughlin, giving him advice. We had all of oh these pastors. We had my father. Everybody was giving him advice, and no one told him, "Hey, she's not crazy. Hey, she's not <sighs> abusive." Oh, my God. Hey, maybe you should listen to her. Right. No one called him out. Of course not. He's a dude. And he wasn't physically abusive. He wasn't violent. He was just, like, twisted and gaslighty and, like, really wrong on some things. But, like, (laughs) really? (laughs) Like, all of these pastors and no one could stand up for me. And that is... When I lost that church, that's when I lost my, like, real drive to even try. Because mm-hmm. what's the point? Yeah. No one's willing to stand up for you. 
Yeah. So I have to do it for myself, and I'll just leave so I don't have to do it in a system that's already... Already against you. Inherently and historically misogynist, yes. Yeah. Wow, I just <laughs> got into it. Yeah, good job. And now I have to go write this crap. <laughs> it's okay, you can just listen to this back and like Play transcribe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will. I will tell that story a lot better when I get the chance to write it out. But that's the bare bones version. Yeah, that makes sense. I just like stopped going to church because I was. I had been going to the churches that my ex-in-laws were going to and they were really far away and not what I wanted and I just realized that I didn't have to wake up to go to church anymore because I was an adult mm-hmm. and that was liberating and so it then we, we stopped going to church except for when my uh, ex-father-in-law preached and at some point I just stopped going to those two because I couldn't deal with churches and I found myself like I would take a flask of rum and just hang out in the bathroom during communion and it was just like why am I even here <laughs> I, I mean I, I could would be do doing this at like, home playing games and it would be fun like were, I mean I would do that for weddings where the minister was fundamentalist and was giving the like now you are some you know me to serve your husband and like there's no other uh, purpose for you uh, Those kinds of wedding sermons. That's the only time I ever brought a flask to church. Yeah, no, I, I always, I always brought one Bless afterwards you. because I was just like, I just couldn't. Well, and we would also like go hang out with my ex's family afterwards, and between yeah, church and and their very conservative Christianity and my like blossoming queerness, I just couldn't. So see, we would go <laughs> hang out with my ex's family afterward, and they were like wow, Sovereign Grace is, like, being really bad about how they're handling this abuse scandal. Let's talk about it. And I, that was kind uh, of a relief. They were great. Yeah, that's good. Um. Well, thank you guys for listening. Please uh, comment and tell us about your own struggles with doubt and let us know if you have any further questions. If you want to support our podcast, you can join us on Patreon at Kitchen Table Cult Pod or find us on Twitter. Where can you find us on Twitter, Kieran? Uh, the podcast handle is Kitchen Cult Pod. My handle is Blue Pup Boy with an I. What's yours? Yours changed. Mine is Eve underscore Ettinger. And if you love the music, which you should, uh, it's Janet by the Heavens from their album's Love Songs. Yep. Many thanks to Aaron Bechtel for uh, being our producer and editing all of our sounds and all of Blanche, Blanche. <laughs> editing Blanche out of every episode. Um, bless his heart, yeah, <laughs> not in the sarcastic way. Um, and where can you send questions? We have a contact page on our website, which is kitchentablecult.com, and you can fill out the form or just email kitchentablecult at gmail. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.